This church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
going to begin worship this morning sharing with you all that Michelle Garside's husband, Bob, passed away on December 30th. She was with him. A book he'd wanted to have published was published in November, and they scheduled author receptions. He said his Jesuit training helped him face illness and dying with peace. Michelle and Bob were married in this congregation in this sanctuary 31 years ago, last October. She said, we used to attend church together and have very lively discussions afterward. Bob's obituary is in today's Chronicle. Michelle hopes to be back in San Francisco at the end of the month. Our thoughts our prayer, and prayers are with them, and we extinguish a candle in honor of Bob's life. May its legacy of love carry on. Welcome to our folks here. If you're cold, just move in toward the middle and cuddle up. <laughs> Welcome to our folks on live stream, especially Sarah and Jeannie. Welcome. If you are new here, we asked the new members if they liked or didn't like being identified, the new folks yesterday at the class, if they liked or didn't like being welcomed. And they said it was better to, if you wanted to, be able to identify yourselves as new. So if you are visiting here for the first time or one of the first times, if you could raise your hand if you want to. <laughs> great, it's great to have you here. <laughs> One person suggested the idea of worship buddies, which we'll get ready to do, so that you can raise your hand and ask for a worship buddy, which I suppose is like a Sherpa and guide to make sure you understand what's going on. So welcome. After service, John Burens, John, who's supposed to be in Rochester but got snowed out, John Burens is going to be giving a tour of the building and the sanctuary so, and some of the history. So if you want to, just come up right here afterwards and he will give you a guided tour. So, so we enter into our worship this morning on this eve before Martin Luther King Day, talking about honesty and legacy, and it seems particularly appropriate then on this Sunday that we recognize that we stand on Ohlone lands. And maybe imagine for a moment how different our nation might look if those who arrived here took that reality seriously and how they made a life here among those whose home it was, how it might have changed our history and legacy, but pay homage to that people and their lands and our presence here on them this morning. So with that frame, Let's enter into worship. Our opening hymn is our first hymn in the gray hymnal, which should be in front of you, called May Nothing Evil Cross the Store. I invite you to stand in body or spirit and sing, sing out our first hymn of the morning.
We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. I breathe in peace when I breathe out. I breathe out love when I breathe in. I breathe in peace when I breathe out. I breathe out love when I breathe in. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong this morning in honor of two such places of suffering and as a reminder of the obligation to know what's being done in our name as a nation and to protect the vulnerable. And so we ring our gong this morning first in honor of the seven children who have lost their lives this year in federal custody at detention camps. And we let that ringing stand symbolically for those adults who have also lost their lives in these camps for the tens of thousands of adults and children still being head, held, many Many of the children separated from their families in conditions unworthy of human dignity and worth, and for the crime of wanting a life safe from fear or deprivation. This week, we ring our gong once also for the ongoing legacy of racism, for its existence in our nation in disparities of income, the opportunity gap, as Ibram Kendi calls it, and the constant reality and threat, even in the news this week, of racial violence, large and public and exhaustingly everyday and common. May we keep those we have named in our thoughts and prayers, all that we have named. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week Howsoever we can.
spirit of life, spirit of love. Sometimes it seems the world is so off kilter. Uncertainty, disconnection, injustice, weighing too much on our hearts. We need to find our balance, recalibrate our living to a center that is holy, to the unity of our lives and the power of the whole. Remind us first just to breathe, to know that breath is life and life itself a miracle. To know that peace resides within us all and is our own to keep. Remind us next that we are not alone. We gather in the strength and life of community, supporting one another and holding fast to our collective dreams. Remind us too of our highest aspirations that justice is a way of life, that peace on earth is possible, and that love, hope, and faith are always alive and real. May we all remember who we really are. Please join me in a time of silence, meditation, and prayer. Amen.
I was born in 1928, the second of three children into a white middle-class home to well-educated parents who lived in a nice house in what we called then a good neighborhood. I was literally given a silver spoon on the occasion of my birth. What defined us then was that we were Protestant, a small minority in the big ethnic enclaves of Brooklyn in those days. Protestantism seemed to equal republicanism and a whole host of social and political beliefs that came with that identity. Roosevelt and his New Deal the and, and the conviction that unions were bad for America. And there was a ranking of those whom we could trust based on their identity and who we had to keep at arm's length. Bunkered down in this way was like living in a cocoon. Supposedly, it was protecting us from danger, but the danger it protected us from was change. In those days, it never occurred to me to challenge these ideas. I had some prolonged hospital visits and house quarantines in my childhood. During these, I became an avid reader and found my ways to worlds that spoke of ways different from my own. My elite public high school was an hour away from home. It had 6,000 boys and was ethnically and religiously diverse, and very few boys from my small white Protestant cocoon. Well, my fingers will work better soon. At times, I was uneasy and guilty about the shared prejudices of my community, which increasingly did not square with what I was exposed to. At 17, I got a job as a counselor in a live-in camp for boys, and opening up of my world for which I will be forever grateful. There in my own city in the faraway borough of Staten Island, I stepped into the reality of an interracial camp with an integrated staff. It was total immersion and way outside my limited world. Race was the elephant on the table, but we never discussed it. We just did our jobs. I had little experience with how to handle or organize a bunch of six 12-year-old kids from working-class families. What saved me was being assigned to the beach. As, as a good swimmer, I had a way to connect. I had knowledge of the problems of people of color, but what I was seeing and who I was meeting made things personal. I read library books on black history and, black, and the black experience to deepen my understanding. And I was also aware that it, on, on our days off, when we went home, the black and white counselors went separate ways. What I had gotten out of the summer became clear immediately. It was my last year of high school. I spoke up more in class. The war was over. Old norms were being challenged. What I had read in newspapers fit into a progressive new perspective. I made friends who liked to talk about social, political, and civil rights issues. I attended left-wing rallies and picket lines. The old cocoon was boring, and I knew that its values were wrong. I also found the power to leave and find a new community. I had the fervor of being right in the energetic way that only 18-year-olds possess. Yeah. 
Our reading this morning is from a book called Gather at the Table by Sharon Leslie Morgan and Thomas DeWolf. Sharon Leslie Morgan is an African-American woman and Thomas DeWolf is a white man and they decide to journey together to try and understand their own and the nation's history around race or begin to. The book alternates in chapters and stories that each of them tell and this is one that Sharon tells. I hope I'm pronouncing this word right. The Loundus County, the Loundus County Interpretive Center is located on the site of a former tent city Black tenant farmers who participated in voting rights activities were evicted by their white landlords. They banded together and built temporary encampments where they lived for almost two years as the voting rights struggle continued. The brutality of white people contrasted sharply with the resilience and courage of the black people seeking rights that were supposed to be guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. Evidence of this struggle was all over the center. This was a place I was adamant about visiting. My father's family came out of slavery in this county. It is very personal to me. As anticipated, my emotions are raw and at the surface. Back in the car for our return to Montgomery, I say it definitely gives me insight into how my ancestors would walk out of slavery and get as far as possible from this place, and how my grandfather and father would never come back. I pause and stare straight ahead through the windshield. I have to stop talking about it. We drive in silence. The hot Alabama air blows through the open windows as we speed along Highway 80, thinking about how long and difficult the struggle for democracy was, was though touted in 1776 to be available to everyone. After an already emotionally exhausting day, we arrive in Montgomery in the late afternoon. We park downtown across the street from the Rosa Parks Museum at Troy University. This is the site where Mrs. Parks entered the portals of history by refusing to give up her seat on a bus in 1955. Her action yet led to a year-long boycott of public transportation in Montgomery. The museum offers interpretation, lectures, seminars, storytelling, and other programs. Artifacts include original documents and a replica of the bus Mrs. Parks rode that day. We greet Georgette Norman, the museum's director, who gives us a personal tour. Norman describes the museum as experiential. We don't try to rewrite history, she said. We let people experience it as they would have experienced it at that time. They make up their own mind. For instance, school children come here and we take them to the events of 1955. White children say they would never have been part of the gang mentality of that time. Of course they would. They do what the culture of the gang says. People don't pay enough attention to how influential culture is in which we live. We go along with the culture. She escorts us to the Cleveland Avenue time machine in the children's wing. On this oversized bus, a simulated robot bus driver navigates a high-tech ride through time. Room-sized video screens, sound, and other special effects transport us to a street scene from the beginnings of the Jim Crow era. We visit Dred Scott, Harriet Tubman, Homer Plessy, and other significant figures from long ago. What we see makes it obvious 
Things don't just happen in history. People make things happen. I invite us to rise as we're able in body and spirit to sing our second hymn of the morning. It's in our teal hymnal. Number 1046, Shall We Gather at the River? idea that legacy, what we inherit and what we leave behind, how it's part of our growing up as a people, a person, a nation, to wrestle with this, and how what we inherit shapes often what we seek to leave behind. A part of growing up even is the process of knowing, coming to know how we were shaped and by whom and why and unpacking the mystery as it's revealed to us in family reunions and stories, ours, our parents, grandparents, if we knew them, like Don described in his piece, early in life, what we inherit is the water that we swim in and we don't often have reason to question it until we do. 
And if we are lucky, a larger, fuller truth, more honest vista gets revealed, scales get lifted from our eyes, things get more complicated. Revelation, of course, as we know, is ongoing. And when it begins, the growing up begins too. In February of 2009, Attorney General Eric Holder said to his staff in the Justice Department, in honor of Black History Month, that despite all, we can celebrate, quote, in things racial, we, in the United States, have always been, and we, I believe, continue to be, in too many ways, a nation of cowards. It was a call to see that reckoning with history and legacy for the courageous, requisite work it is for grown-ups. On this Sunday of Martin Luther King weekend, it seems especially apropos to talk about that work. Years ago, I saw a documentary about a family who entered into this work, a white family led by some members with others agreeing to go on the journey. The documentary that was made about it was called Traces of the Trade. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's directed by Katrina Brown. Katrina is one of the descendants of the DeWolf family, a historically prominent family from Rhode Island. Early in the documentary, the 10 cousins agree to go on this journey, and they begin it first in their hometown, at least their family's historic hometown of Bristol, Rhode Island, looking at historic society records and buildings that were once owned by one of their prominent ancestors, James DeWolf. The journey begins there. And why was James so prominent? So the story begins. I think often the assumption is that the South is the cornerstone of slavery, the foundation, the anchor, the engine behind it and the slave trade. But they come to learn that half of the Africans brought to the US as slaves landed in Rhode Island. And the most successful of the families who were part of that work were the DeWolfs, successful in that work. From 1769 to 1820, the DeWolf family alone brought 10,000 people out of West Africa into slavery. One estimate is that as many as half a million of their descendants currently live in the US, the descendants of those 10,000 slaves. James DeWolf was the most successful of the three generations who engaged in the slave trade. Financially, by the time James died, he was the second wealthiest man in the country, purportedly. The US Navy, was small at that time in our history, but still, in his time, James DeWolf owned more ships than the US Navy. And all of this was something that the co-author of Gather at the Table, Thomas DeWolf, did not know until he was in his 40s. Part of knowing our history is unearthing what often gets conveniently, out of shame or fear, written out spoken in whispers and then never at all. The DeWolfs, they knew their family had been prominent, had money. Thomas said in an interview once, the typical white person's response to slavery is, yes, it is bad, but it wasn't us. It wasn't my people, except it was his people. And so he and the family that were invited to join set about tracing the extent of the triangle of geography of the slave trade as their family had participated in it from Cuba to West Africa and all the holdings that were part of that very well orchestrated effort. 
Part of their journey is realizing how embedded, how deeply embedded slavery was, not to diminish their own culpability as a family, but as they and others have pointed out, it wasn't just the slave traders who were complicit. The entire economy of places like Rhode Island were based on the slave trade. The boat makers, the sail makers, the sailors, the grocers, the bankers, the insurance brokers, a whole array of businesses, and all the businesses that served the people who served those businesses. So doctors and school teachers and garbage collectors, everyone benefits from and participates in it. That's part of the deep sin of this history. Everyone benefits but the 10,000 people the DeWolves will bring from their home in West Africa to a life of sorrow and abuse and degradation for themselves and generations to come. After Traces of the Trade was released, and Thomas writes his own book chronicling that same journey, the one the documentary covers, his journey doesn't end because He's invited to a gathering of an organization called Coming to the Table that started in 2006. And there he meets Sharon Leslie Morgan, the African-American woman we heard from this morning in our reading. She's from Chicago. Morgan is a marketing and communications consultant. She founds the National Black Public Relations Society. She's also interested in genealogy. Five months later, the two meet again. And after talking, they decide to take up the challenge of what the healing work might be, might mean. They decide they're going to journey together to learn more about slavery, more about our nation's history, and commit to knowing each other and each other's families intimately. In the next three years, Morgan and DeWolf will visit 27 states, experiencing together sites of racial terror and civil rights victories, courthouses and plantations and antebellum homes, travel to Lawrence, Kansas, to the Battle of Blackjack, where free state and pro-slavery forces first battle and to Tobago, even, to the enormous sugar plantations there. They commit to being radically open and honest in the process. They learn history that no one ever told them about. Thomas says at one point, it isn't just that his family in the North were as guilty as the Southerners, he says it's the sundown towns in the West and so much history and complicity, enough to go around. And what they, what they find, too, in sometimes surprising moments is how and where the legacy of the trauma of slavery shows up on the journey. One story Thomas tells is of a trip, a trip they took once when they're driving to his sister's house for Thanksgiving as part of this work to get to know one another's families intimately. His sister lives in Southern California in a rural part of the state, and so somewhere along the drive to get there, they pull off highways and main roads and they find themselves on rural back roads that will be the final stretch until they get to her house. It's a road, he says, with arching trees overhead and avocado orchards and fields, something that for him likely feels calm and lush and gorgeous. But as they go over a bridge, Sharon seems anxious and asks, if the road floods, is that bridge the only way out? Thomas says how it was odd because the, the riverbed was dry, and at this time in 
Southern California, there's not rain or a threat of it, and none was predicted. He wonders what's going on and makes a joke about it, and she doesn't laugh. So they talk. And they realize that Sharon has learned, has been taught the dangers of being alone with white people, especially in rural places. Lynchings are part of her family's history. It's part of the history of this country they know and pass along. And she's been taught you must always know a couple of ways out of a place, a place like this. There is, quote, distance built on unease, on shame, on discomfort that is rooted in traumatic separation, Thomas said in a C-SPAN interview in 2014. Katrina Brown, the filmmaker, notes in a PBS interview of her, we all inherit this unfinished business. And Sharon says of the healing, it's going to take a lot of work over a lot of years because it took a long time to get here. And all agree it will be work of acknowledgement first and then atonement and repair. If the DeWolf's experience as a family is any indication, it takes this intention to uncover the history that now would prefer to be forgotten. And time and intention and commitment, including in relationships across the race divide, to begin to understand the deeper legacy of that history. And finally, time for healing and asking big questions about now what that people like Ta-Nehisi Coates in his well-known article in the Atlantic Monthly in 2014 on reparations asks, and others are asking too, and asking white Americans to answer faithfully and boldly. Groups like Coming to the Table now offer reparation guides you can download that detail processes for personal and societal reparations in the largest sense, the repairing work. Because things don't just happen in history, right? People make things happen. Because as a nation, just like for each one of us as a person, we won't grow up. We won't really grow up until we see and confront and make sense of the whole story. Because in this conquered slice of North America we call the United States, a country whose wealth was and is still built on the exploitation of others, whose founding story is not just courage, and vision, but genocide, and cruel and horrific evil. We will have no ability to claim the best of what is possible for us all until there is honesty, atonement, connection, healing, repair, reconciliation, and reparation. Which of course means that the white folk in the room, <laughs> all of us who are white, have to own our part of the work, which didn't end with the civil rights rallies, or when we saw a little bit further than our parents did. Everyone's hands are dirty, everyone's sleeves need to be rolled up, and love guides this long journey and it is the best reason to stay on it. But you know all of this. So let me just tell you a little of what you can avail yourself of. Some folks are reading the Indigenous People's History of the United States this month. We're discussing it 10 days from now, Wednesday night or Thursday lunch that week. Read it, finish it. I have a few pages to go and come. Rochelle, where are you? Rochelle Fortier-Wadibia, who's our 
vice president on the board of trustees, she and I are getting a wholeness task force off the ground that is answerable to and in relationship to the board to coordinate this part of our work, the work we're talking about this morning, and also coordinate the healing that happens when hurt happens here among us, which it does. Places like the Racial Equity Institute do great training, so does our denomination, and there are opportunities for UUs of color to support one another at annual conferences and online communities that help hold the pain of a denomination that is not yet completely reconciled to the hurt it inflicts regularly on its members who are people of color and to help chart a way forward. Finally, of course, you and I can begin digging into our own stories of legacy and then sharing those honestly as we do this work. And then we ask what we hang on to and what needs change and what needs repair before we take this legacy of life we have been given and history and pass it on. It's gonna take a lot of work over a lot of years, Sharon Leslie Morgan says of the healing, because it took a long time to get here. But the land to which we hope we are bound demands that this is the only road to freedom and justice. So here we go. One more step. Bless us all in the journey. As King said, we cannot walk alone, and we walk. As we walk, we make the pledge that we shall march ahead, because we cannot turn back. I know there's a lot of flu fear, and rightly so. So if you are immunocompromised or just cautious, 
You can put your arms across your chest and you will be connected to the interdependent web which we symbolized during the benediction in some creative alternate way, if it's elbow to elbow or whatever it is, that's good. Karen's brought gloves for the benediction, which is smart in lots of ways these days. Good. And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace, for this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. listening to this podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday morning worship service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more.